All right, 1 Corinthians 12 is where we're going to be. So uh, we, long time ago, we were in 1 Corinthians 12. Back uh, in April, before our workshops, before we uh, diverted into the discussion about worship, uh, and then had uh, our worship Sunday, uh, beginning of July, and then VBS kind of took over, then fellowship nights took over. And uh, so now here we are back and, and trying to remember what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. So let me just kind of remind you, uh, before we just dive right in, what the discussion's been about in 1 Corinthians 12. We've been talking about how uh, God gave spiritual gifts to the church. Why did God give spiritual gifts to the church? What was the point of somebody having the ability to teach or somebody having the, the, the gift of generosity, the, the desire to give or to lead or to have mercy or whatever? What, what, what are those gifts for in the church? What's the point? To what? To serve. To serve what? The body. To serve one another and to serve the cause of Christ by serving. Like there's this integrated thing that as I serve you and you serve me, as we take our gifts and we give them to each other, it's God's way of connecting us. And as we do that really well, the kingdom of God grows, God is glorified, and the church goes forward. We really need to see what what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 happen in our church on a weekly basis. We really need to see this kind of thing grow. Now, what gets in the way of that? That people have different gifts and they are given so that we will serve each other. What gets in the way of that happening? Pride. The whole book, really, of 1 Corinthians has been a study in how pride really messes up your church. (laughs) I mean, it messes up your life. But it gets in the way so quickly of the thing, the great good thing that God has given us in church and family, because pride says, how does this make me look? How do I feel better uh, about myself and and what I can do as opposed to what you can do? Uh, And so instead of seeing the, the design of God in the variety of people and giftedness and personality in the church and saying, isn't that awesome that God brought all together? We instead tend as human beings toward, well, I think you're weird and I don't like you and you're, you know, old or you're young or you're loud or you're quiet or you're silly or you're serious or whatever. Whatever it is, we get like reasons to be apart from people instead of being connected to people. And, and you see it all the time. We walk into church and, and as a church that isn't static, our church has never been like just This is the same people every single week. It's always new faces or people you haven't seen or whatever. And so, especially now with two services, it's a little bit more of a a swirl like that. And so you're constantly challenged. Are you going to come in humble or are you going to come in proud? You're going to come in about whether or not you like the people that you're with, whether there's enough people here or too many people here, whether the, you know, it's too loud or too soft, or you like my message or you don't like my message. You know what I mean? Like, that's all about pride. That's all about me. It's all about how it makes me feel. And it is, I hope you can see this, how we set ourselves up as judges over what God says he is doing. Isn't it? Ultimately, God is the one at work in our church. And as God is the one directing these things, for us to set up ourselves as critics of it is really undermining because we are full of pride. 
And so the whole book of 1 Corinthians has been about pride. It's been about, you know, well, I should get the right to eat meat offered to idols because I'm a stronger Christian than you. And if you're not strong enough to take it, then too bad for you, right? Uh, We're not married. Well, we are married. We're better because we are married. We're better because we're not married. Who's better? Who's worse? You know, all that. Uh, I'm taking you to court because you owe me money. And uh, I, I'm going to make sure that you pay me what I'm owed. And I belong to, to, to Paul and I belong to Peter and I belong to Jesus and I belong to Apollos. And, you know, that's my leader and he's better than your leader. And like the whole book has been about that as we've gone through it. And over and over again, Paul calls them back to humility. And what you're going to find as we get to the end of this chapter is that this humility that he's called them to blends or is the perfect on-ramp to chapter 13, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible to people who know Christ and people who don't know Christ, chapter about love. Everybody understands that love is like core to existence and life and meaning and purpose. But love cannot happen without the kind of humility Paul is talking about. Without us laying down our own agendas and laying down our puffed upness, it's incredible to me how regular we are as people to to find ways to look down at other people. And so Paul, as he talks about these gifts, last time we were together, way back in April, what Paul said was, there are some people who come into church and they look at their abilities and they look at their gifts and they say, my gifts aren't good enough. We're going to put that, just take that to the back for me because we're going to put that back in the... uh, the kids' room in the back. My gifts aren't good enough. I don't have the gift of whatever. I don't have the talents. I don't have the personality. I don't have the ability. So my gifts don't matter. My gifts won't do anything. So therefore, I won't use them. And Paul says, you are puffing yourself up against God's design. When you say that God's choice for you was a mistake, that it has less purpose and meaning for you because your gift isn't one of the gifts that you want, that you desire. Uh, And so he kind of goes to that, those who self-disqualify. Now, he had gone to this idea of people who disqualify others. So start with me um, down to verse 21. Here's what it says. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. All right, so Paul got done talking about, you know, if you feel like your gifts aren't big enough or or spectacular enough or whatever, and you disqualify yourself, you're wrong to do that. You feel humble, but it's it's a false humility. It's a humility that says, My gifts are worthless. God made a mistake in giving them to me, and I'm in a position to judge God on that. There's some pride, but it it comes off as humility, right? Now he's addressing a different group of people. What group of people is he addressing now when he says, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you? Who's he addressing now? 
Sure, everybody, but, but what are these people, he, who is he correcting? What are they doing as far as gifts are concerned? Clearly, they've decided that whatever I have is better than what you have because I don't need you, right? I have no need of you because I'm more important or I'm stronger or I'm whatever. And so there's this, this judgment cast on these other people that says you're worthless. Now, as you think about that, in the context of Christ follower, okay, we're, a, we're, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Where does that rub up against following Jesus Christ? To say to someone in our church, I don't need you. Maybe we would put it, I don't want you. I don't like you. I don't want to be around you. I don't want to include you. Maybe we'd put it lots of different ways, but basically it's, I don't need you. Even though you're part of the church family and God has made us one body, I don't need you. I think we would be better off if you weren't here. How does that interact with the example of Jesus Christ? Anything about Jesus's life or Jesus's way that says something about that? Jesus received everybody. Some examples of people Jesus received that shocked people. Children. Insignificant, no standing, don't count for anything. Children. Because they can't bring you any honor, they're just kids. Children. And he said, let the children come to me. Who else? Prostitutes. Lepers. You're not, certainly prostitutes morally are going to corrupt you, and lepers physically are going to corrupt you. You know, so stay away from them. Keep your distance from them. You would be better off not to interact with them at all than to have any interaction. And yet Jesus seeks them out. Jesus has conversations with them. Jesus heals them, right? Who else? Tax collectors. Huh. Tax collectors like Zacchaeus. And I was talking to somebody the other day about this concept. Jesus didn't go to Zacchaeus at the tree and go, now listen, I want, I want you to know that what you're doing is wrong. You're really blowing it. This whole cheating and lying and stealing from your people is a really bad thing. And I just want to get that clear up front. What did Jesus do to Zacchaeus? Let's have dinner together. I'm coming to your house. And he sat and ate. And we don't have recorded the conversation, but I think that's even on purpose because the conversation wasn't really the point. It was that Jesus went to his house. That was the big statement. That was the scandal. That's what all the religious leaders were like. How can you go eat at his house? He's a tax collector. You shouldn't even want to talk to him. And Jesus said, no, I'm having dinner with him. And Zacchaeus' response, without any confrontation from Jesus, with just acceptance, with just compassion and kindness, with just saying, yes, I want to be with you, I I like you, or "I I think you're worthwhile as a person, just that drove what response from Zacchaeus? What did Zacchaeus do at the end of the meal? Anybody remember? I'm going to make it all right. I'm going to give back to anybody I stole from multiple times of what I, what, what I took from them. I'm going to make it right. And so there is this sense of the power of God, not from a position of I am morally superior to you and I will tell you where you are wrong, but do you see it in the gospel? I think that I want to spend some time with you. I think that I want you to know that you matter to me. I want to... I want to be connected to you. And we see the God of the universe doing that in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, 
In church, we find ways to say, I don't want anything to do with you. It is not following Jesus Christ to have our own tastes of people to decide who is worthy of coming to church and who is not. Notwithstanding the discussion in 1 Corinthians 5 about, you know, you have to have church discipline and, and as people who are accountable to each other, and that, that's one thing. But that's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people that you think you're better than or you think are beneath you in some way, shape, or form. They're more less intelligent than you. They're more offensive than you. Their sense of humor, they're, they're, you know, the way they take care of themselves, whatever it is, you think that they don't deserve or they're a bother and yet your Lord doesn't. So we followers of Christ or is this something else? And so Paul says to the Corinthians, you can't come into church and say, I don't need you. We are not entitled to reject one another. And I'm saying to you, if we are going to fulfill the purpose God has for us as a church, we have to own this. This has got to be real to us. Not like a nice out there concept. Yeah, the church shouldn't reject anyone. I mean, literally, when you come into church on Sunday morning, you should have a wide open heart to people. You should, not just your favorite people, but people. Because God loves all of these people. Jesus died for all of these people. And that's hard because I, you know, there are people I don't like. <laughs> there are people who don't like me and so I don't like them in return. You know, I mean, there's, there's, we're humans, so that's hard. I'm not saying we do it perfectly, but I am saying we need to hold that value so that it molds us over time, so that we grow into it. And as a church, we cannot get away with it's all right for us to exclude or reject people because we think we're better than they are. That, that idea that Paul holds on to in Timothy where, you know, of all the sinners in the world, I'm the worst one. That idea fuels Paul going to the least, to the worst, because he sees it as following Jesus. And we need to too. That's, I don't know what all God has for us as a church in the future. I'm not, you know, I'm not a great visionary in that way. But I do know this, at the core of whatever God has for us around the next corner has got to be a humble, loving acceptance of people. Serving them with an attitude that models Jesus Christ wrapping the towel around him and washing the feet of the disciples. It has to be like that. It cannot be that we as a church get together on Sunday or Wednesday or whenever we get together and we enjoy being together and we enjoy listening to the word and we enjoy worshiping and we walk out and end of story. There has to be a living, breathing serving of one another. And that has to be real. In order for us, and the thing that gets in the way of that is pride. All right? So I don't get to say, what do I like? What do I want? How do I want it to be? What I get to do is say, Jesus, how have you called me to serve? In a, in a nation where we glorify the individual, where we glorify, you know, you got to make it happen for yourself and you got to look out for number one and, and all of that makes so much sense in a capitalistic, individualistic, freedom-based society. In the church, that cannot permeate us. It is fine for us to be individuals in terms of we're unique and created by God, but it is not fine for us to be a bunch of individuals that are not interconnected and serving one another, that don't care about each other, and that don't care about the stranger. Uh, uh, right now, I'm in the middle of uh, my last seminary class, and I'm reading a book 
for this class that is, in a very weird way, not Christian. It's, it's kind of hard to read because it's, you know, well, the Exodus didn't really happen. It's a myth. And creation stories are this way. It's kind of that kind of a thing. But you know what? In this book that's all about the facts and the facts and the facts, you know what keeps coming up? is how often God told his people Israel to have a heart for the, the lost and the poor and the strangers, the aliens. Over and over and over again, he says to them, you've got to look out for those that don't have anything for themselves. And man, where is that in the church? Where is, where is that heartbeat to be passionate and proactive and make sure that anyone who's down, we're there with them and, and, and we want to make sure that needs are met and people are fed and, and people feel important. They feel like they matter because they matter to Jesus Christ and that's our call. That's who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says as he gets done with you can't reject people is he says this. On the contrary, he draws this contrast. And I think this is an interesting uh, discussion that Paul gives us here. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, when he says weaker, what do you think he's talking about? The part, because he's, he's picturing a physical human body. So he says, as you, as you like, think about your body, as you think about, you know, here's my human body, the parts of my body that are weaker are indispensable. So when he says weaker, what do you think he's talking about? Okay, so people, he's talking about the people that would be more what? More needy, more, needy, more vulnerable, okay? So now Paul's comparing that to my body. What parts of my body are vulnerable that, that require special protection? Like, I don't know, yeah, like a internal organs, vital organs that you can't live without organs? They are protected, they are weaker. They are not on the outside on my arm because if they were damaged, it would everything, right? So they would seem to be weaker because they're vulnerable or more vulnerable because they're in need of protection. And a blow to them is different than a blow to my arm, which, you know, I, my body can survive a broken arm and, and fixing, but my body cannot survive a, a broken heart, a, a pierced heart, you know what I mean? Or lungs that don't work or whatever. That doesn't, those internal vital organs. And Paul says, we already know if you want to kill someone, you, you pierce those vital organs. Those things that are vulnerable, that have special protection, that when I go into battle, I have a breastplate to make sure that nothing hurts that, right? Because those are more vulnerable. Those are weaker. And yet, they're indispensable. In church, what he's saying is, in church, we tend to think of someone who is vulnerable as someone like, well, they're weak anyway, they're just, oh, they're so needy. They need some protection all the time. They need like a rib cage around them all the time, you know? And Paul says, instead of reacting to the burden it is to protect people, recognize that they are indispensable. I wonder if that says anything to us, challenges us in the way that we interact with people. And so what he's saying is that their function is vital to your life. So I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but when he talks about these parts that are, you know, weaker, uh, unseen, so to speak, um, I think I get the reference of what, there are parts that you don't notice so much 
unless they don't work. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know the last time I really took inventory of my lungs. Like, how are they doing? Are they working really well? But I bet you it was the last time I was sick or coughing. You know what I mean? If I, I don't really think about the beating of my heart. It's vital. It's absolutely essential for my life, my, my heart beating. But I don't think about it. You know, it's not like a every day in and out. Oh, did it beat? Oh, did it beat? Until there's an irregular rhythm there, right? Until something happens wrong. Similarly in the church, there are people who are, you know, out there that are quiet and, and don't seem to do it. But he says, just because they're unnoticed doesn't mean they're unimportant. They are indispensable to the body of Christ. This to me, is non-negotiable. In how Paul presents this, this is non-negotiable for a genuine church of Jesus Christ, for us to value people. When we get to mid-November, we're going to take a, a redig into our core values as a church. One of our core values is that we value people. We value people to the degree that there are times that programs suffer for the sake of people. You know, there have been times where um, you know, like for example, this past Sunday, uh, there was not, there was a teacher who didn't come for the toddler class. Um, and instead of me saying to Kara, well, just go fill in. You're in charge. Just go fill in. I said, Kara, you need to be in church. So we're just not going to have a toddler class. That is one way that we say, I know you're willing, but I value you and your spiritual well-being more than I value what you can do for me. I value people. Right, And so people at the very core of who we are matter. Even people who are weak, that are vulnerable, that seem like they are always hurt, they matter. And so we do, it doesn't mean I can rescue all of them, but it matters to me who they are and how they are. Okay? So know this, if you're in church and your ministry is unseen or unnoticed, Paul says it doesn't mean it's unnecessary. If you're, you know, a pancreas or a spleen or whatever, and nobody even knows what you do, like, I don't know, what does a pancreas do? It does something really important, I'm sure. But I don't know. I don't think it's in there, right? It's working. It's doing its thing in there. But it's inside. And, and like that, in church, you're doing something, and nobody knows about it. and nobody, You give, and nobody knows about it. Or you pray, and nobody knows about it. It's, okay. Does not mean you are unnecessary, and it does not mean you are unimportant. As a matter of fact, you're ministry may never get noticed and may never get praised. But that's not really the point, is it? If I'm looking for praise in what I do, then I'm getting the praise that really belongs to the one who gave the gift, right? So there are some of us that God gave gifts where when praise comes our way, we have to give it to him. There are others where praise never comes our way, but that's because God's going to get the glory for what happens even though nobody knows what you're doing, right? And so the parts that are indispensable uh, often seem to be weaker, unnoticeable. Then he says this, um, the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Okay, in both of those things where he says uh, special honor and special modesty, he's talking about covering them up. The words there are about covering them up, modesty. So he's talking about the parts of the body that are normally clothed. Okay, And he's saying that just because a part of the body is covered, just because it's less presentable, 
does not mean that it doesn't matter. Okay, so, you know, you can imagine, you know, people walking around unclothed and, and you know, nobody wants to see, you know, our, parts of our body that aren't very attractive and all that kind of stuff. And that's what he's saying is you need your torso, but generally your torso is covered. It doesn't mean, well, because it's covered, get it out of here. You know, let's just, let's just deal with the arms and the, and the head. That's all we need. You know? No, your arms and head may be the thing that's the, the extremities of you, but it doesn't mean that nothing else of you is important. As a matter of fact, uh, when you get really, really cold, uh, your extremities get cold, but, your, but all of the activity gets to the important parts of you, which is your core, which is almost always covered, treated with special modesty, Right? But it doesn't matter if it's attractive or not attractive. It's a part of the body. Its value is in the fact that it is a part of the body. And so it says the part that we think are less honorable, we treat with special uh, honor. And the unpresentable parts are treated with modesty. And so those less attractive parts and those indecent parts, they're covered. Doesn't mean we don't need those parts just because they're not on display. Doesn't mean we don't need those parts just because they're not on display. All right. So as we think about that in church, when you would relate that what Paul is teaching us here about parts that you know rarely get seen, parts that nobody really wants to see, what kind of stuff in church would that bring up in your mind? I think it's a really good exercise for us as, a, as people of the church to think along those lines because it's easy for us to think about serving in church as ministries that come right to mind, you know? Uh, being on worship team or, or preaching, those are, they come right to mind. Or even a greeter, that's right to mind. But what about other ministries that nobody sees, nobody really wants to see? They, they get covered up and they probably should be covered up because they need to happen. They're important functions, but they're just, it would be really bad for them to be put on display for everybody to see. What kind of things might that be? Cleaning a bathroom? Yeah. There you go. I mean, that's a, it's a simple task, but we're not going to get a camera and follow you into the bathroom and like, oh, look how they cleaned that toilet. That was awesome. Hey. Like, we're just not going to do that. Is it important that, that our bathrooms are clean? Uh, if you don't know how important it is, let me just share this with you. Statistics show that the number one determiner for whether a visitor will come back to a church or not is the cleanliness of the bathrooms. How about that? Not the music, not the preaching, not the greeting. Is the bathroom clean? Why? I have no idea. It doesn't matter. It just, statistically, that's, that just shows you the things that are covered up matter. Any other roles that come to mind that behind the scenes nobody wants to see, shouldn't see? Yeah? Changing some diapers in the nursery? Absolutely. Great serving thing needs to happen. Parents coming in, their babies are taken care of. Absolutely. Great example. Anything else? Card ministry? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, if we were to watch somebody write out cards, it might be a little bit boring. Mm-hmm. Right, prayer ministry. Now, think about this, because the idea of indecency comes in here, okay? Is there a way that you can connect the dots of 
Some of these ministries that happen behind the scenes, if they were brought out into public, it would ruin the whole thing. Like prayer ministry. Can you imagine a prayer ministry if, I'm, if, if whoever's praying has to get up in front of everybody and put it on display for everybody, what they're praying for? Isn't there all of a sudden a trap here about what am I praying for, what, what, what reaction? Or what? It's supposed to what prayer ministry is in its purity in a closet, you know, off by yourself in your private prayer space before you and the Lord. And so it becomes indecent done when it really needs to be done off by itself. Same thing with counseling. You know, I sit and talk with a lot of you folks. Um, the stuff that we talk about, it would be indecent for us to talk about that in the broad. It's not nothing wrong with it. It's a great thing, but it wouldn't do any good for us to talk about it in front of everybody, right? But it's a vital thing that happens in church. And a lot of you have those conversations with each other. And it's about sharing the gospel with each other. It's about building one another up in Christ. It's about letting the Spirit use you to encourage or, or, or uh, hold someone accountable, uh, you know, exhort them towards what's right in, that, in the privacy of that conversation, not in a public way. As a matter of fact, have you ever seen where a, a, what should have been a private conversation happened in public and it ruined lots? It was destructive because it happened in public, you know? Just talking to somebody today, we're talking about the effect that it has on your children when mom and dad are fighting in front of them. Uh, You guys aware of that? Big effect, big effect. And it's not that everybody has to be perfect with that, but the the reality is that it's better for for me and, and my spouse to have those disagreements over here, work them out and come out unified, come out together, not to ask the, ch- the, the child to sort through who's right, mom or dad, you know, and, and deal with all the, the sense of what does this mean about me and about our home and our family. Like, that's not for them. Nothing wrong with disagreeing and, and arguing and, and working it out, but where you work it out. So same idea here in church. There are functions that happen that are vital to the, to the role of the church. And by faith, you can understand that God will use what you do for the kingdom of God, not looking for and, and even on purpose hiding what you do because it's necessary for the, the body to function, how the body needs to function. Does that make sense? And that's kind of what he's saying there is that so as these roles happen, as these roles come up, as God designs them, uh, they are the things that, that we put uh, behind the scenes and off behind a curtain. And yet taking the trash, pretty important thing, you know? We're not going around during the service and like lifting up the trash and everybody clapping for, yeah, way to go. That was awesome. Put that bag in there. That was great. That was the best bag put in I've ever saw. We don't do that. It would be distracting. It would be pointless. But would it have an effect if our trash was never emptied on our church? Sure it would. Not only in the look, but in the smell and in the, the sense of does this matter? So you see, there, there are things that are done behind the scenes on, on purpose, covered up, but doesn't mean they're not important. Doesn't mean they are less a part of the body. All right? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and addictions is is a lot along the lines of counseling where... In some sense, the fact that it's covered up is one of the things that enables the ministry to happen. Because in an addiction struggle, a lot of times the shame factor or the, you know, I don't want to, 
be put on display about this is one of the weapons the enemy uses. And so the, the knowledge that this is something intentionally done, shrouded, is what opens the door for somebody to come and, and take a part of it, which is a good thing, uh, enables it to happen. Yeah, good, good example. All right, any other thoughts? To me, I think this is really, really important, that as a body, we function as God designed us to. And so, so then, God, then, then he says this, and God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts who lacked it. God has combined the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Okay, so I don't think what he's saying here is that, so those parts that are immodest and those parts that need to be covered up and those parts that are vulnerable have greater honor than the parts that aren't. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying here is that the body, when it functions as a body, has greater honor than when each individual part decides that its task is the most important. Right? You with me? So here's what he says. God combined the parts of the body, meaning God put us together. And if we will function together as a body, if I will have your back and you will have my back, if I will trust you and think the best of you and you will trust me and think the best of me, if we will function together as an effective body of Christ, there is greater honor. What's the greater honor? To what? The Lord gets the honor because he's the one that put this menagerie together of a bunch, you know, all of us, uh, ragtag misfits or whatever. And somehow he put all of us together and does this amazing, incredible work. So who gets the glory for that? He does. The greater honor, the greater glory is that when we as a church function in the way God designed for us to work as a body, when we're not beset or, or overwhelmed by all these pettinesses and all of this you know, internal pride about, I know what that person should do and I know better than they do and, and they shouldn't disagree with me and all, all that stuff. When we're not in it for ourselves, but we're in it together for the cause of Christ, then there's this greater honor. It's not about how big our church is. It's about recognizing that God is glorified in our church. Whoever's here, Two people or 2,000 people. Whoever's here, there's greater honor when God is the focus rather than us as individual people. And so the, the, the kind of like the, the suggestion there is when we start to try to pull honor for ourselves, acting individually, acting independently, we're taking honor away from whom? From God. When church becomes a place to be self-centered, self-aware, self-driven, we are taking the honor away from God and trying to get it to ourselves. Anybody know anybody else who did that in Scripture? Satan. The, the original where sin was found in Satan said, I have been glorified by God, but instead of reflecting His glory, I will take the glory for myself. I will be like the Most High. So it's that same pride that in us says, well, I have this gift, I have this talent, I have this ability, I have this advantage. Instead of using it for the kingdom of God, instead of serving someone else with it and trusting by faith that that means that God is getting glorified, I will try to make myself feel important like I've got a big voice and everybody listens to me and everybody wants to be my friend. And Because of that, I will look like a big deal and other people can look like a smaller deal. Now God is not getting the glory that he deserves. 
because God gave you that gift. What did you do to earn that gift? Zip. Nothing. He just gave it to you. So he should get the glory because he's the giver of the gift. He's the one who empowers the gift. And he's the one that designed this whole thing anyway. And so when he talks about God has combined us to give greater honor, it's bigger than a singular honor. It's not like, well, God elevated these weaker parts and gave them greater honor. It's in the combination that greater honor is achieved. And the greater honor is not for me. It's not for a, you know, a part behind the scenes or whatever. It's kind of like what we do when, have you ever heard the, uh, the saying of Jesus where he talks about the last will be first and the first will be last? When I heard that, especially as I was growing up, here's what I always thought. I always thought, you know, you got a line waiting to get on a ride or whatever. Got this big long line waiting to get on the roller coaster. And the first would be last and the last will be first. So they took the line and they just kind of turned the whole thing around. Ah, you thought you were first. Ha ha. Now you're last. But as you look at that in the word of God, that's not what it says. That's not even what it means. The first will be last and the last will be first. One of the parables that that's said after is the parable where A man goes out to get some workers at the first hour of the day. And he says to them, I will pay you a penny, a denarius, at the end of the day. And then he goes back out at noon and finds some other guys who need work and says, "Uh, come work for me and I'll pay you whatever I think is is, is right. And then he gets people with one hour left in the day, come work for me and I'll pay you whatever I think is, is a good payment. And at the end of the day, he starts with the people who worked one hour and he gives them a denarius, a penny. And the people who worked all day were like, this is awesome. We thought we were only getting a penny, but they worked an hour and got a penny. We're going to get more. But when he comes to them, he gives them the same thing. And they go, wait a minute, this is not, something's wrong here. And at the end, when the the master says, hey, didn't I give you what we agreed upon? How can you say I'm not fair? And can I do with, with what is mine, what I desire, whatever I want? So there's this teaching about that. But then the saying that sums it up is, so... The last will be first and the first will be last. So what, is, what does that mean? There is no line. <laughs> Do you, that's what he means when he says the last will be first and the first will be last. We, there's no first and last. It's just yes or no, right? And similarly, in the body of Christ, it's the same idea. There is no who's better and who's worse. Who's a good Christian? Who's a bad Christian? Who's an important person? Who's not? It's you're a person or you're not. You're a part of the church or you aren't. It's you're, you're a part of the body and God's put you here or he hasn't. But when the body stops acting like that and the body starts acting like there are these divisions and these, these schisms between us, that's when we get to be malfunctioning. As a body. That's when instead of being a machine that just generates glory to God all the time, and wherever we go, the glory of God is just arising from the people of God because we're serving each other and feeding each other, and, and it's just naturally happening. Then it's just about this well, you're just like everybody else. You're just in this for you. You know? When, when churches become political battlefields, we take away the power of God and we de- de- devolve the church into a mechanism where it's just the same as any other human uh, organization. Whose ideas loudest, strongest, can sell the most, wins. But is that ever what the church is supposed to be? Because, first of all, we have someone's ideas here who trump everybody's ideas. So we should all be digging into this, and then we have the Spirit of God inside of us to lead us, and so this should just be about whatever his idea is. Sometimes his ideas are ridiculous. Sometimes it's, listen, 
You, all, a whole bunch of you, you're not soldiers. You're not ready for battle. You probably don't even have any swords. So I want you to go conquer this whole land. And here's how we're going to start. You're going to walk across a river that's flooded. And then you're going to walk around a city for seven days. Why does not make any sense? What kind of plan is that? That's a God plan. Sometimes what God asks us to do is specifically to make us look ridiculous so he looks glorious. To make us be weak so he's shown to be strong. How are we with that? Yikes. I don't know if I can do that. I thought being a Christian was all about feeling good about yourself. Being a Christian is about being grateful that our God saves, that our God cares, that our God is faithful, that our God is true. That's what being a Christian is about. And that other people get to know it by my life or by my death, by my exaltation or by my humiliation, whatever it is, as long as God is known. And that for us, something really, really powerful. And so he says, God combines us to give us greater honor. Just because we uh, can overlook a part of the body or cover a part of the body, we can't assume it's unimportant. And those whose roles, I think this is really important, those whose roles naturally draw honor should give greater honor to those behind the scenes and those unnoticed. In other words, that when someone you know, is up front and, and doing something that is easy to notice and easy to appreciate and easy to see, so Becky gets up on Sunday and sings to open up our service. You know, and I, what a blessing that song is as it ministers to our hearts about, you know, what if your blessing comes through tears and, and what if that's an evidence of your goodness in my life and it digs a hole inside of your soul and it asks you a question that invites you to deeper faith and it's wonderful that God has gifted her with that voice. So that draws easy attention, easy honor. But what do you do with that? You recognize First off, that God has given it to you. Second off, that there are other people doing equally important things in this church at this very moment. I can, I can accept the encouragement and the appreciation without thinking it makes me bigger, greater, better, more. I can say, you know what? I'm really thankful for the guys back there who were making sure that the track started on time and making sure that the microphone was on. And I'm really thankful for the people who made sure the air conditioning was running so everybody wasn't sweating in the place today. And thankful for the people who were in the nursery so the babies weren't screaming while I was singing so that the, the message wouldn't even get heard. I mean, right? Thankful for the people who pay the electric bills so that the electric's on so they could turn the microphone on. I mean, there's all kinds of roles that are behind that that aren't even seen. So I want to make sure that we keep that in mind as we go forward. That when I get the spot of, of honor, I want to put that honor on all of us. So we succeed together or we fail together. It's all of us at once. He says, God did this so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts would have equal concern for each other. Now, equal concern for each other. What's that mean? God made us like this with parts that were presentable and parts that weren't. Parts that have honor and parts that don't. Parts that are vulnerable, parts that need to be covered up. All these parts and put us together into one body. And he says, God did this so that there would be no division in the body. No division. But instead of division, 
All of its parts should have equal concern for each other. What's that mean? What's he saying there? Okay, so that we are connected, we recognize our need for each other. In part, because I don't have all the gifts and you don't have all the gifts, it's easy for us to recognize we need each other. In a church where, where one person or a very small group of people does everything, that church can't function very well. So we need everybody to pour their gifts in as God has given them to you. Absolutely. What else? So we would have equal concern for one another. Equal concern for each other. What's that mean? Ah. Yeah, it's, it's not so much that I have equal concern for you and you, although that's an application of it. Like, everybody I care about in the same way. You know, to, I see them through the same, you know, filter. But the big part is, I have as much concern for you as I have for me. Huh. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard that before in other words somewhere? Love your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest commandment, right behind love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is love your neighbor as yourself. Because God knew what was going to become of the word love. You mean whatever you want to mean, right? Oh, love your neighbor. I love my neighbor in my own way. He didn't say love your neighbor however you want. He said love your neighbor as yourself. Your concern for you, you, how you take care of you, how you watch out for you, love your neighbor like that. Care about them like you care about you. That's a challenge. But that's the embodiment of love, that my concern for you is equal to my, equal to my concern for me. Right? And, and that's exactly the opposite of what the Corinthians have been doing. Their concern for their own name and reputation and standing far outweighed their concern for other people. Uh, we saw when they got to communion, they didn't care about other people. What were they doing in communion that, that Paul corrected that made it very clear that this was not that they had equal concern for one another? Do you remember? It's back in chapter 11, so it's a little bit ago. But do you remember what they were doing? Somebody was, some, some of them were rushing ahead, meaning some others were left out. So some of you are, are stuffed and some of you are starving. You don't care because you go, well, I brought this. This is mine. And so we're going to have our meal. And you guys, hopefully you make out down there with your meal. But this is going to be our meal because this is the kind of food we eat. This is our class of people. This is our class of food. We wouldn't be able to digest that kind of food down there. That's what you guys have. You, you know, that, that's the... And so Paul says, no, we should have equal concern for one another. And can you see how quickly your flesh can twist that into, I do have equal concern for you. You can eat the kind of food you're used to, and I'll eat the kind of food I'm used to. And so equal concern. That's really clearly not what he was teaching. He's teaching we should treat one another as equals. We should have the same concern for you that I have for myself. And maybe I have too much concern for myself, and that needs to go down. Or maybe I have too little concern for you, and that needs to go up. But that's what the, the calling is. For us as followers of Christ. And he gives an example of that. He, he goes into, so that if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So he kind of goes both ends of that. If someone is hurting, I own that. Right? If your heart is broken, can I, can I be broken hearted with you? 
if, if you're struggling or, or drowning, does that matter to me? Do I feel the weight of that? Is it something that impacts me? Or am I like, man, would you quit whining and get out of here? You know what I mean? So if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. That is an increasing challenge for us as a church. As we get bigger, and especially in a two-service format, it is an increasing challenge for us to be intentional about if one part suffers, we all suffer with it. It is why our needs team operates the way that it does, where if there's a need in our body, we put it before you and say, hey, there's a family in need, there's a person in need, we want to share in that need because if one part suffers, we all suffer. You know what I mean? That's Christianity 101 right there. It, I mean, look out for those in need among you. Serve the poor. Give what you have to benefit someone else. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. That's rubber meets the road of Christianity every single time, 10 out of 10 times. That's rubber meets the road Christianity. Now, we can go on the other side where it's like, well, nobody wants to accept help. That's a whole different thing, right? But our heart as a church is, if someone is hurting here, we want to serve them. We want to, we're not, not looking to get taken advantage of and not, not looking to be you know, stupid or ridiculous. But at the same time, we are looking to be intentionally generous, intentionally connected, intentionally sharing in the hurt, in the pain, in the struggles, in the journey of one another. Flipping it around, what he says is, if one part is honored, everybody rejoices. In other words, if something happens here good at church, we all share in that together. It's not the victory of one person or whatever. It's the victory of all of us. And so I'm invested in you succeeding. I'm invested in you doing great at whatever God's given you to do. I'm invested in that because when you win, we all win. When God does something incredible through you, he does it through us all, right? And so as we pray for one another, as, as people bring up you know, a, a relative that's on their heart or, or, or someone, a, a coworker or whatever, and we pray for that. And I don't, I'm not, I don't know what's happening there, but I pray for you as you go and you speak that God would give you words and then God does and you come back and report it. Hey, you'll never guess what happened. God gave me this opportunity and I shared it and you'll never guess what happened. And what happens inside of me? I can either go, oh, that's weird. That doesn't happen to me. I don't, what's wrong with me? Am I a bad Christian? Does God not care about it? Like, does that happen? Or does it go, that's so cool. I can't, that's awesome. I'm, that victory, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm with you. I share that victory because we did that together. God used you on the front lines, me behind the scenes, but God used us as one. And as I prayed for you, God used the prayer that I had to give you strength so that you had the right words to say. Isn't that cool? And listen to what happened and we share in the victory together. There's a self-centered, isolated, individualistic way to do church. Far too many churches do that. And then there's this bonded, united, body of Christ way to do church. And with all that we have, we as the church of Christ have got to pursue that. We have got to break down barriers. We have got to pursue people. We have got to initiate relationships with people. We have got to resolve conflicts with people. We've got to clear the air when it needs to get clear. We have to look for people who need encouragement. We have to share in the needs of other people. We have to be connected as the body of Christ or we are not submitted to the design of God. We're just doing our own thing. I mean, it'd be like God saying to Moses, I'm going to lead the people out of Egypt. I'm going to lead you by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. Follow me. And the cloud starts off 
And Moses goes, yeah, that way looks really hard. I'm not, let's go this way. We'll catch up to you, God. We'll catch up to you over here. I mean, that's the hubris it takes for the church of Jesus Christ to function differently than what God has designed it to function is like saying, I see the cloud going over there. I know that God wants us to go over there, but that looks like, I don't know, that looks like a lot. So we're just going to go over here and hopefully we'll catch you on the backside somewhere. You know, we'll catch up to you over there. The church does not work. Christianity does not work unless you do it as God designed it to work. I hear people sometimes talking about their faith is really struggling and they're really dead inside and you know they, they don't know if they believe anymore or whatever. Christianity works when you do it like God asks you to do it. It doesn't work half-hearted. It doesn't work lukewarm. It doesn't work disconnected. It doesn't work without love. It doesn't work without the power of the Spirit. You can't just do Christianity any which way you want to do it and expect it to work on your terms. Christianity works when you do what God says. When you believe that what he says is right and you go forward. So as a church, do you want to reach the world for Christ? Do you want to see the kingdom of God grow because of what we do here? Then we got to do it like this. We can't be the people who get up on a soapbox and, and preach at our neighbors about how you know, sinful they are and how wrong and wicked they are and how much better we are than they are. That doesn't work. I think we've seen that. But if we find someone in need and we go take care of them, if we actually genuinely care about people, that could change the world. And it has many times throughout history. I'm hoping that God will use us, that God will take this kind of truth and plant it inside of us as a church so that we will do this for the kingdom of God. And so that this, who we have here tonight, is just the start, is just the taste, is just the very, very first crop of what God wants to do here at Hope. And so as we go forward, we're going to get into, we're going to finish out chapter 12 next week and, and jump into chapter 13. And remember, what's coming is all of this works only when love is at the center of it. And I think that already makes sense. Selfishness, pride, the complete opposite of love, right? So Paul's driving them down to what their deepest problem is. And their deepest problem is they don't love one another. They don't care about each other. Love is not something that you put on and like act it out for a little bit and then throw off. Love is something that God produces as you are submitted and surrendered to the Spirit and walking by the power of God. Love is something that happens in the depths of your soul and bursts out as fruit from a living tree because the vine is connected to the branch. Hopefully that stuff we'll see as God does it in us and through us. All right, so we'll pick up there next week, the last paragraph of chapter 12, uh, and go from there. Before we go tonight, um, 